The Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is from Mark 12, 28 through, 20, through 31, and can be found on page 1017. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which one is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Um, we, uh, it's really hot in here, isn't it? My sermon is soaked because my water bottle was sweating all over it. Uh, so hopefully the pages won't get stuck together. Anyway, I was thinking about like, oh, it's kind of like hot yoga. People pay money for this. <laughs> We're just here to help you with your health. Okay, anyway, we are continuing on in our People of the Book series, a year-ish through the Bible, and we're into Micah today. And, you know, I love the prophets, like, a lot. Uh, but when you go through the whole Bible, you realize how many there are, and also maybe why people kicked them out all the time and also murdered them, because, like, it's a lot. And this last one, this is the last one, except for Jonah. We'll go through Jonah, but Jonah's a really different kind of book. Um, anyway, recently I preached through Amos uh, and I just let it be a critique of our culture because it really rings true. Um, I could do the same with Micah, but I'm not going to, uh, lest you toss me out of the church. Um, one commentator, um, well, I just want you to know, I could do it. It is totally about us. 
One commentator summed it up by saying that the leaders um, of Israel at the time that Micah is speaking despise justice, distort the right, take bribes as a matter of course, are skilled at doing evil with both hands, and all the while the religious leaders sanction it, saying even that it is God's will. And of course, the people don't want to hear from the prophets. Micah says in chapter 2 that the perfect prophet for them would be a liar and deceiver who says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. Uh, It's totally us. For the most part, um, here at Sherman, we, I think, get these critiques of our culture. You know, we hear them ring loud. Um, And we long for something different. Most of us are trying to learn and to move in the direction of healing and restoration, but we also get stuck at, like, what can I do? Um, And Micah so conveniently offers us a really concise answer. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This uh, concise answer is at once so demanding and such a relief. Um, And I want to talk, we will talk more about both the demand and I think the freedom that it brings. But I first want to back up. We'll talk about the whole passage, starting at verse 1. It's kind of interesting because it starts as if it's a legal battle, um, which is because God is bringing an accusation of a people who have broken covenant. Um, But it starts like a legal battle, and the courtroom is the whole of creation. The mountains and the hills and the foundation of the earth are to hear the case of Israel's broken covenant. And we don't hear any of the particular accusations here, but you don't have to look far to find them. Jump down to verse 12, and it says, your rich people are violent and your inhabitants are liars. There's lots of things like that through Micah. Um, They're worshiping idols, pursuing dishonest gain. There's a growing disparity between the rich and the poor. Um, They have turned away from the ways of God, and you see throughout the text, throughout the prophets, it is the vulnerable who suffer most when that happens. And that's what's happening in Micah. The people of God are not being true to their covenant with God. And you hear God's pain about it in verse 3, when God asks, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And then God reminds them of the things that God has done for them delivering them from Egypt, giving giving them the leadership of Moses and Aaron and Miriam, leading them through the promised land. And then this one peculiar story of uh, when the king of Moab tried to get Balaam to curse Israel, and then every time that Balaam tried, he just ended up blessing them instead. Uh, It's a bit of a weird one. But uh, in all of these stories, God is saying, remember, remember what I have done to save you. And then in verse 6, the people respond. They say, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Lots of commentators that I read seem to think that those 
people are asking a genuine question, like they're looking for a legit, like, what sacrifice do you want, God? Tell me and I'll do it. Um, I don't think so. Like, I can't read it that way. I hear them saying, like, what do you want from me? Which, of course, we all know means, like, I've already done all I could do. But God has already told them exactly what God wants. And it is not rivers of oil or child sacrifice. It's much more simple than that. He wants them to stop harming people and to tell the truth, to turn back to their God. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It is not one mighty show of devotion. It's not heroics. It is a faithful life, quiet and small and consistent. Like a marriage will not be sustained by like a really great Valentine's Day every year. It needs attention every single day. A kiss, a touch, a kind word, a cup of coffee. God doesn't want this abusive kind of relationship where the people do whatever they want and then turn around with extravagant apologies. But faithfulness in the everyday. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. It's small, and yet it also demands everything you've got. It is at the same time much more demanding and much more liberating than the things the people suggested. To act justly is to repair harm wherever you see it. In the Old Testament, the word justice, the words justice and righteousness and shalom, they're often found together. Sometimes their meanings overlap a little and sometimes you can also use them to instruct one another. Um, shalom, uh, we talk about a lot, is that pervasive peace and well-being that comes when everything is as it should be. Everything in its place, every relationship whole, everything acting as it should. Righteousness is the kind of behavior that produces shalom. It's honesty and generosity. It's trust in God. But whenever there is a privation of righteousness, so like righteousness is here, it produces shalom, whenever we kind of dip below the line, justice works to bring it back up. Justice isn't so much about assigning blame and punishments as it is about making things right again bringing us back to righteousness and shalom. So it is an individual making things right. You know, you steal something, you give it back. You apologize. You confess your sin. It's about you making things right. And it is also about that more collective social justice. When things have gone wrong in our society, we work to make them right. When someone is being hurt by society, we work to make them right. To act justly is to act in line with righteousness and shalom and to repair harm wherever you see it. To love mercy, um, I think, is actually a really tough one. It's the kind of thing that we really like as an idea or like when other people do it, it's really lovely, but when it's asked of us, it's really tough. Um, the word behind mercy is hesed, and it's not like it doesn't have a very clear English translation. 
Uh, if you want, you know, we've been watching those Bible project videos, you can watch, they have one on this word. Uh, so you can watch that. Um, mercy is a pretty good translation, but so is kindness, so is steadfast love. Um, chesed is a tenacious love that is generous. It is a love that puts up with a lot and sticks around, that gives of itself, and that depends much more on the character of the lover than it does on the behavior of those who are being loved. It is a love that won't leave you, even, say, if you break covenant. It is the, one of the first words that authors in the Old Testament go to to describe God. God's love is tenacious. And the clearest expression we see of said in scriptures is, of course, the cross. In Jesus, God walked through torture and pain for the sake of God's love for us. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. That's said. While we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. While we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to God. That's said. It's a love that can't be scared away. Which means in a sinful world that it is a love that often suffers. And I think that when we're doing our best to act justly, it is extra hard to love mercy. Um, when you're really focused on like doing what's right and making sure that you know, nobody's doing what's wrong, it becomes really easy to want to bring the hammer down on those people who aren't doing it right. And on ourselves when we fail. It is so tempting to hate the people who are not acting justly. It's so tempting to be exacting with one another and with ourselves in what we say and what we do. And I think being able to hold these two alongside one another, to act justly and to love mercy, it requires the third one, which is the hardest one, I think, but also the most freeing one, to walk humbly with our God. What's curious about the people's suggestions of like, the sacrifices they could offer is that they escalate really quickly to become entirely ridiculous. Like it starts with just burnt offerings, which like they could do that. God said you should do that. Uh, but then it's a thousand rams and 10,000 rivers of oil. Like I don't even have one river of oil. What they're suggesting is beyond their limits, right? They can't do it. And I wonder if that's part of the problem actually and maybe why Micah refers to them in verse 6 as mortals. The word behind that is Adam. It's like humanity. Uh, but we know from Genesis 1 that Adam, Adam, Adam is made from the Adama, from the dirt. He's saying dirt people, earthlings, mortals. Micah, Micah kind of brings them back down to reality. Look, humans, mortals, dirt people, 
No, rivers of oil are not required. And you can't even do that. God wants everything you have, but absolutely nothing more than that. And that's why I think this verse is such a relief. God wants everything you have, but nothing more. And we are so often trying to do more. But we are mortals, creatures like the animals. We've been given a role, a calling that is above other creatures um, in some way, you could say, uh, to care for them, to tend the creation. And we bear the image of God, which makes us distinct, but we are still creatures. Um, I was reading uh, Dave Warner's book this week about creation care, or, or kind of debating what word you should talk, use to talk about it, which makes it hard to talk about it, like uh, earthkeeping. Um, anyway, I came to Amina Bradford's chapter, and lots of you know Amina because she attended here for a while. Uh, it's a great chapter. Anyway, she talks about how we understand the fall. Um, Amina says that, you know, we often think of the fall uh, like Adam and Eve ate the apple because they could not control their animal desires. Like they just, it was lust and appetite, and that's why they ate the apple. They failed to rise above their animal instincts. But that's actually not it. The text points in the opposite direction. It wasn't that Adam and Eve were too much like the animals. They sinned because they tried to rise above their creatureliness. The serpent tempts Eve by saying, if you eat from that tree, you will know good and evil and you will be like God. They tried to get around their need for God. That's the sin. And ever since, we have been plagued with this belief that maybe we are actually like God. Maybe somehow we should be able to control everything and to do everything and to know everything and fix everything. But that's just not who we are. And sometimes our attempts to be like God are hard to spot in and of ourselves, uh, but I am 100% certain that if you look around in there, you'll find it. Um, I see it in myself and my propensity to worry uh, some, sometimes I notice that if I like try to stop worrying about a thing, that I feel almost guilty. Like, as if, like, do I think that my worry is actually affecting some change somewhere? Like, that's kind of crazy thinking, right? Like, I do not have superpowers. My worry does nothing. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I, I'm, I am limited to my body. Right? And I can affect change as far as my body and my voice can go, and that's it. But do you know who can do things beyond time and space? God can. And God asks us to pray. I am a creature. I can move around in my body, and I can pray. I am not God. I am small. I 
I also see it in the ways I try and control other people um, or in the level of anger I get through like moral and political disagreements. Um, the way that I feel like if I hang on to that anger, it might do something. Again, that same weird superpower. Um, it's in my tendency to want to fix all of the problems, to end racism and fix the climate and convince everyone everywhere that we should just love each other. And then my despair and shame that comes when I can't do it all. I can't even, like, get my dishes done. But of course I can't do all the things. I am not God. And what part of me thinks that I should expect that of myself? He has shown you, O oh Jen, what is good. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. You be a creature, and let God be God. Do what you can, and then pray, and then take a nap. God gave you your limits and even commanded you to follow them in the Sabbath. You are not God. He has shown you, O creature, what is good. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. It is all at once more demanding and more liberating than any sort of sacrificial system. It's not a thing that you can check off a list and be done with. It is every day, your whole life, your whole heart. But you get to be a creature. You don't have to save the world. God has already done that and promised to bring it to completion. You don't even have to fix anyone or even yourself. God has already done that and promised to bring it to completion. You just work to set things right where you see it, to love kindness and mercy, and to rest in the goodness of your God. It's like so simple to say though too, but it's a massive overhaul of the heart, um, which is why we often struggle with those simple commands, right? In God's plea to Israel, God gives the means for change. God says, remember, remember what God has done. And it's not just remembering with your mind, it's like a whole body kind of experience. Um, like remember in such a way that you know the goodness of God deep in your bones so that trusting in God is your reaction. It just flows from you. And then you don't have to try and hold everything together on your own or control it all. You don't even have to be perfect or right. Then you don't have to try and fix or save everyone you meet. You can just leave that to God. I'd like you to talk about this today. What are the kindnesses of God that help you to remember? Um, maybe if you go to the potluck, that'd be a good thing, question to ask. Uh, I think it's kind of silly that as Christians, maybe this isn't true everywhere. It's true for me. It's hard to like share these things without feeling sort of embarrassed about it. 
but when we hear these things from other people, it is so encouraging and nourishing. So I would encourage you to ask the question or be the first to share or whatever the vulnerable thing is, have courage. Um, and I'll go first. Uh, for me right now, remembering the goodness of God is, is remembering God's command to forgive. Um, and some of you have heard me talk about this, but I have a spiritual di director who recently directed me to uh, forgive someone. Uh, it's none of you. Uh, don't, don't be nervous. Um, but she said that I thought, my spiritual director said that she thought I needed to do this work because it was impacting me even though I wasn't really seeing this person. Like it was coming out in different ways. Um, not to mention like Jesus said so. Um, anyway, I worked hard at this. Uh, it's the first time that I've ever felt like I was really doing a spiritual discipline. Like it was hard for me to sit down and do this because um, what I did, and I'm sure there are lots of ways to do this, but for about a month, most mornings, I sat down and just like picked a painful memory with this person and wrote through it. I tried to think about my own pain in it and I tried to think about what was going on and I asked the spirit to just enter into this kind of like a conversation. Um, and I'll give you one specific without the details. Um, well, I should say too, I resented this. Like, I didn't want to have to do it because I was the one harmed. Um, and it's just kind of nicer to think that this other person is a jerk. Uh, but I try to be obedient to Jesus, generally. And um, it turns out that even the difficult stuff that God asks is grace all the way down. Um, so I remember standing in my kitchen, uh, and this person said something hurtful to me. And so just this memory, I have this picture of the kitchen. and. I first began to think about my own pain in it. And I, you know, I'm trying to work out like, well, why did that hurt? And what was important about that? And blah, 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 like whatever. And I just really sensed the presence of Jesus standing next to me in the memory. Like I sensed Jesus' compassion for my younger self. And it helped me to have compassion on my younger self. To say like, like, I feel really bad that that happened to you. That was really sad. And then I started thinking about um, this other woman. And the image kind of shifted to seeing Jesus standing with her at the same time as standing with me. And again, feeling compassion. And I began to feel it too. Like, to see that the harm that she caused me was actually way more painful for her. Like, whatever place that was coming from was a deep wound. And what caused that in her? I don't know, but I wept and I prayed for her. And that discipline, it led me into love in a new and profound way. And I felt released from my anger and pain. I felt overwhelmed by the kindness of a God who would command this of me. And so I remember that grace. Now, when I feel frustrated or where is God in this, I remember that moment of grace. And Jesus' harsh words about needing to forgive seem harsh, but they are grace. 
and in being obedient to them, I have learned that in my muscles and bones. I will remember it. What do you remember? Where has God been kind to you? There are also like practices that help me remember. Um, I sense the presence of God and feel like God is speaking to me when I um, read the words of other people, when I journal, um, when I sit in silence. Being on a mountain is really helpful for me to remember to being small, I snowboard. Uh, that's difficult in Michigan. Um, but those are some things that help me, and I know that. And Tony is really different from me. He senses the goodness of God in conversation with other people. I mostly sense anxiety there. Uh, <laughs> so uh, for him, that's the space to enter into, to remember God's goodness. Other people find it in the woods or in art or music, and there may be practices that will help you that are different than any of these. Um, if you want to know some spiritual disciplines that, and help you want some help pointing you in the right direction? Come talk to us. It's like our favorite kind of conversation. Um, you will have to discern these things for yourself. Um, and maybe you want to share these with each other as well in that same conversation. What are the things that you do that help you remember? Because we need to remember. Because it shapes us into people who can do justice while loving mercy at the same time because we are walking humbly with our God. That gentle and small everyday faithfulness of creatures, that's all that's asked of us. And in the end, it turns out that even the hard bits of it are grace the whole way down. And as we enter into this faithfulness, into justice and persistent love held together with, the humility, with humility before God, we also enter into God's joy. Um, in Luke 10, when Jesus sends out the 12 and you know, they come back to him afterward and they're thrilled, they're like, they healed people, right? And they, um, <laughs> the text says that Jesus was filled with joy through the Holy Spirit. And the word for joy there literally means jumping for joy. Jesus was thrilled. And the disciples were doing such simple things. Like they walked from town to town. They didn't run. They went to people's houses. They blessed them with peace if they would receive it. They didn't argue with them if they wouldn't. They healed the sick and they told them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God is here. It's such simple goodness. And because of their goodness, Jesus says he saw Satan fall like lightning. And Jesus was delighted, jumping for joy. Let us be a people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly into the joy of our God. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you that we get to be your creatures. We get to be cared for by you. 
and that we don't have to do more than that or be everything or solve all the things because we can trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would teach us what it means to be your creatures. And also that you uh, would help us to remember your kindness, that it would sink deep into us, that we might live out this life of faithfulness that you ask. In Jesus' name, amen.